Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there, welcome back. And this is episode 83. Um, And today we're delighted to be um, welcoming Matthew Todd. Uh, onto the podcast. Um, Matthew is an author, performer, broadcaster who wrote um, a book which we're going to talk about in a moment called Straight Jacket, which is um, overcoming society's legacy of gay shame. And he also wrote Pride, uh, the story of the LGBTQ uh, equality movement. Um, he is sort of best known, I suppose, for being the editor in chief of um, Attitude. Um, up until was it 2016 I believe yeah that's right yeah yeah um, and that's the sort of biggest gay uh, magazine in the UK and he writes for the Guardian and also uh, his play Blowing Whistles um, was a uh, incredible piece about gay mental health addiction and fidelity Um, and so yeah well normally we start with a little check-in and then we get into kind of your story and, and and how we got to know about you so um, how are you doing, Matthew, today? I'm all right. I'm a little bit um, anxious. It's, I'm not enjoying lockdown and I live in a small flat, so um, without a garden and without mm. a balcony. So um, it's not it's not ideal. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, I'm still here, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to be thankful, haven't you? <laughs> still breathing. Yeah. And you, Kate, how are you doing? Oh, don't get me bloody started. Um, I just, like, we had a little chat, didn't we, beforehand? And I am, shall I say, like, I'm working fairly hard at my mental health at the moment. Like, really feel like the weight of the world, kind of. Yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for just, like, being with it, though. It's all right. Mm. It's what it is. And I don't, you know... So I'm kind of all right with it. I'm not mega overwhelmed, but I'm not, you know. Yeah. What about you, Mandy? Are you going to bring the sparkle or are you tired <laughs> and have you got a headache? <laughs> I've tired, got a headache. It's raining today. Um, yeah, no, I'm all right, actually. I kind of feel quite proud of, well, having this conversation. I feel quite proud of what we've been up to this week in terms of our business and looking after our boundaries and sort of stepping back from a few projects. And I don't know, I, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strange world to be part of, but um, I'm, I'm learning a lot and yeah, so that's a kind of, yeah. um, I feel good in, in being in a process of, of learning, I suppose. Um. So, yeah, so I'll just sort of explain the context of how we got to know you, Matthew, is that, um, you know, we've got two friends that we kind of collaborate with and we loved bits within the sober community um, on Instagram, which is the Gay Sober. And, um, oh, what's he's changed his handle now, isn't it? It's um, Proud. Proud and Sober. Uh, So it's Scott and Lee. And we did a podcast about, it's probably probably about six, maybe about a year ago, um, about shame um which was kind of sort of delving into shame in terms of drinking and addiction but also shame in terms of being a a woman you know and and everything that's happened in life and how that impacts and and how that impacted on our our drinking and that kind of constant um 
kind of constant fear of being ourselves and and showing ourselves in our true self, I suppose, and and that kind of um, and getting over those, you know, that cycle of drinking, and that really resonated with with kind of Lee, and and then he saw your book, um, Straight Jacket, and read that, and that had a huge kind of impact on him and understanding his own journey um, with alcohol and and being a gay man. And then he passed it on to Scott and Scott read it. And again, it had a huge impact on him. And then you've got to know Scott. And so, you know, this is a, a wonderful kind of full circle of then us getting to speak to the author. author and, you know, and it's such a huge topic. Um, and, you know, I'm just really, really interested to, to learn more really about, um, about this concept of shame within the gay community and how that impacts on addiction and, and um, yeah, so we always sort of start by telling us a little bit about your journey into going alcohol-free, if that's okay. Mm. Um, <clears throat> thanks for having me. I'm sorry if I'm a bit croaky today. I don't know why. Maybe it's just being locked in a dungeon. But, <laughs> as we all are. Um, yeah, uh, well, um, well, I was I was born in, in South London and kind of near, grew up near Croydon, uh, which my mum always says, don't mention Croydon. Um, uh uh, no Croydon shame. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, sometimes it is interesting because actually, I, yeah. I mean, I think that is mm. not just Croydon, but I mean, I, I actually you know I'm fond of Croydon in, in some ways. I mean, you know, it's a complicated thing. But I've got friends who, I've got one friend in particular who grew up really poor, and he, it's a huge thing for him. It's a huge amount of shame for him, and he, you know, he drinks a bit uh, too much, and I think that's an underlying thing for him. But um, yes, it's complicated. Um, I I knew I certainly knew I was different by the time I was six or seven at, at, at school, and I felt very anxious. I didn't feel like the other boys, and felt scared a lot. I was kind of I, 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 I looking back now, I kind of I think my sensitivity was attracting bullies sometimes. Mm-hmm. Agree, and also if I'm honest, I was became very clingy. Even even by about six or seven, I knew that I was kind of clingy with friends and kind of quite possessive. And well, I went to another school and um, <clears throat> it was very difficult. I had massive crushes on people like the choir master at the church I used to go to, and um, my best friend at school. That were absolutely overwhelming. I, I look back now and think I was very. Uh, needy and I suppose damaged I suppose I know lots of you know young people are but it, I, it, it, I did stand out I think um, and I didn't I didn't know why it was and, and then when I was about nine or ten I remember a very specific moment at school suddenly hitting me like a thunderbolt oh that's what I am I'm this word that I'd heard gay queer all these kind of like not you know lots of other nasty words I'd heard I realized that that was me and it was a really huge moment and very very confusing and bewildering and I was you know I was 10 years old and I look at 10 year olds now and think my god you know to have that dumped on you at that age it's just completely overwhelming and and there was no there was no one to talk to because this was the early 80s and it was very very different from the way it is now it's certainly not perfect now at all but um you know there were no gay out gay MPs and you know no no out gay TV presenters you know the pop stars weren't out at that point it was literally something that people did not talk about other than in a negative, hateful way. And at the same time, that was happening for me in the early 80s. AIDS and HIV were kind of emerging. And certainly, I mean, all around the world, but the UK press was particularly bad. The press was just massively homophobic, especially the Sun newspaper. 
they just had this campaign of uh, real, I mean, almost like Nazi-esque hatred. And I don't use that term casually. I'm not suggesting they were lining people up to kill them, but they did. I remember when I was researching Straightjacket, I was going back looking at these cuttings and there's kind of things where they refer to, in the editorials, to gay people as gay terrorists. It was a constant stream of cartoons. There was one cartoon I remember seeing as a kid in the sun because my dad used to bring the paper into the house um, where they showed a man hanging his gay son from from a noose in a cartoon. I mean, it's unbelievable. Even when I talk about it now, and I've talked about it many times, it still really shocks me and upsets me. So I was absorbing all of that. So no one to talk to, absorbing that, hearing homophobic things from my parents, hearing homophobic things from my friends' parents, hearing homophobic things from my friends, from absolutely everywhere. And I just, I think I, sh- I, I went into this kind of despair and crying myself to sleep a lot and wanting to be dead at that age, 10 to 16. And then I think I started to shut down and I became obsessed. I had a bit of, I would say I was maybe disordered eating when I was younger. I put on a lot of weight, became overweight, um, became obsessed with films and theatre and musicals and things like that, very kind of gay, cliched things. But I think it's a, a pattern for quite a lot of us, actually, that I think people who are traumatised as kids find ways to check out of that pain. And I think food, uh, entertainment is a big thing for, for people, you know, not just gay people. Um <clears throat> And then when I was 16, I eventually came out uh, onto the gay scene and found alcohol. I didn't have a drink until I was 17. Was, I was 17 when I first went to a gay club. And, I, and the, the anxiety that I felt, I remember very specifically when I started drinking, that anxiety disappeared. And for the first time, I felt I was able to relax and dance with people I'd never danced before because it was too self-conscious and really did not like myself at all. And... I just disappeared into that, into drinking and dancing and uh, having a nice time. And most of the kind of next 20 years were a blur of alcohol, but also codependent relationships, very obsessive, complicated relationships, melodramatic, self-destructive behaviors and relationships. And um, it was <laughs> wasn't very nice. And it was difficult because I, because I was kind of quite fun- – I was functioning uh, – addict or alcoholic or whatever you want to call it um and i i eventually started working at stonewall the gay rights charity and then started, got a job at attitude and worked my way up there so i was doing kind of you know okay and doing pretty well in you know in my career and stuff um but constantly struggling and constantly struggling with relationships and with drinking and when i wasn't in a relationship it was about kind of like sleeping around and, and sleeping with as many people as i could and I'm not being judgmental about that because, you know, it's a very, very complicated subject. And if that's what people want to do, that's fine. But it was as a way to uh, dull my feelings, I think. And I would constantly ask for help. Even when I was, it was 21, I was at university. I went to see a therapist there at the university and um, I'd had a bereavement and talked about that for the first couple of sessions, but then tried to talk about some of my feelings about my sexuality and the therapist who was lovely. She was really, really nice, but she said, I I don't know anything about gay people or gay issues. And at the end of the eight sessions, she thanked me for helping her, for educating her. And I was 21. I really needed someone who knew more than I did. And the same thing happened when I saw a a therapist in my GP. Again, she was really good. She's a really nice person, but she kind of said, 
well, things are better now. And it just, we just, uh, you know, she kind of was kind of dismissive about it. And, but also gay, you know, gay therapists. I saw quite a lot of gay therapists over the years and through sexual health clinics and things. And they never had a clue about what was going on either. And then I think there was, I realized that even though I was working at a gay magazine and part of the gay, you know, world or community or whatever, this kind of need to counter, um, what had all the homophobia and the prejudice and the gay rights movement, you know, the fact that we'd all be, we've been oppressed for, for so long to fight that this narrative was of gay pride and waving a rainbow flag and all constantly like batting away criticism, which didn't leave any space to talk about some of the real problems that there were. Because I realized as I was getting older that lots of my friends, huge, huge, huge numbers of my friends had very, very similar problems and were in very self-destructive patterns. And, by the time I got to 30, I'd lost quite, quite a few people, you know, like through suicide, friends of friends, someone I went on a date with, I found out five years afterwards he had taken his own life. Um, someone I worked with, another gay magazine, he, t- he took his own life. I mean, there was just a really big trail of just destruction amongst my LGBT friends, and uh, no one had any answers. And eventually, my best friend, who also had an eating disorder, alcohol problem, depression, he uh, found his way to Overeaters Anonymous and uh, began a new, a new story for him, which he then foisted onto me about uh, thinking about these problems in a different way and, and recovery. And I eventually ended up going into uh, recovery and, and realizing that drinking is not the only problem, but was a significant part of my problem and uh, yeah now I stopped and started for a while but I'm six years six years sober now so um yeah well Yay. it's a big yeah it's a big cornerstone mm. to coping for me now and staying alive I suppose <laughs> yeah and that's such a good key you know to sort of to that message that you know it is for us we always talk about as an anchor you know it's like life doesn't get easier but it's such a kind as you say a cornerstone of kind of of survival to to be sober so um yeah okay yeah so I was gonna ask some things that that I've been thinking about recently and some things that you said about so bear with me as I ramble a bit um I was watching um little fires everywhere that that um Amazon series and there's an artist in there and just a big big story but she says to this one kid who's really struggling of this perfect family she says to her something like um we all need to find our voice and if we don't find our voice we become artists Uh, and Mm. and there's there's something that resonated there about all the the trauma piece the the fantasy piece that you were talking about and that thing about being seen for who we are and belonging and when we can't, what do we do with that? And it and it seems to be so. There's sort of, sort of lots of little threads there that you were talking about, and I'm really interested to sort of, I don't know, hear your thoughts on that. I suppose about being, you know, that sort of being seen. That's such a different thing to belonging and can and fitting in, for example. Mm. And and those pathways of recovery from you know from from the the, the trauma piece. I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking. What am I asking, man? I don't know. <laughs> I guess you 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 want to. I guess you want to know is like why. Well, explain what do you what do you mean? Yeah, sort of. 
I also, I suppose, a, a sort of, you know, the, the recovery pathway. I really don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to say, yeah, I'm sorry. And that's what it's so much stuff, isn't there, that that is all swelling around. And I, I suppose you, I suppose you're just looking at um, just how when you feel different and you're unseen and you don't have a community and you feel very alone, it's just it, it, it's overwhelming, isn't it? And and what's really interesting is that because I speak a lot from the perspective of being a gay man and. Um, you know, the, the gay community, which has been the focus, which is what my book, Straight Jacket, is about. But what was amazing to me, well, when I, when I went into recovery, to go into recovery um, meetings where they were specifically LGBT ones, which is really, really helpful and really, really healing, because, you know, you, you don't have to worry about what you're saying. And, and it's amazing, you know, to, to have a community of people, you know, who are the same as you and been through those same experiences. But also it's been really, really helpful going into just mainstream recovery meetings because um, to, to hear, I, I, I had a real thing about, oh, it's just the gayness and the sexuality and this huge weight on me, and it's all so awful. It was really, really helpful to hear straight people and to hear you know, straight men, straight women, and a really a huge cross-section of, of society talking about their problems. So, you know, and things that have happened to them, be it, like I said earlier on, my, my friend who is gay, actually, but, you know, who, who a lot of his stuff came from the fact that he grew up in extreme poverty and had to hide, was ashamed of his parents and was ashamed of the fact that the clothes he wore. And, and it was a massive thing that created a huge amount of shame for him. And so, you know, as we all know, you know, in recovery, you meet a lot of people may, may have been gone through, you know, abuse when they were kids or may have been, you know, traumatized by things that happened to them growing up or, felt that the, I don't know, the mother or the father didn't love them properly or, or whatever. There's a huge thing. And there's this kind of theme of being made to feel not okay and isolated and not being able to have that healed at the time when you're a young person um, seems to be a very common thing that sets people up for, for feeling really shit about themselves and then starting and falling into patterns of medicating those feelings in maybe ways which aren't particularly healthy, which then become patterns, which for some of us may become addiction. I know that not everybody yeah. feels comfortable with that word, but just, um, yeah, that it just seems that there's a, there's a commonality there. And, and, I, yeah, and, I, and I, still, yeah. I still feel very much kind of um, unseen in some ways in the sense that, you know, even today, you know, there's, there's ongoing discussions or just happens to be today with this whole thing with, J.K. Rowling and people, you know, about trans identities and stuff. So it just feels like that trauma is kind of re-triggered in a way because it really, I really remember, I I really like J.K. Rowling. I love her books. I've got them for my, like, kids in my my life. But it's it's, it's painful when you see people doing to a certain section of the community really, it feels like how it felt for me when I was a kid, when other people were talking about you and, um, in ways they didn't and when they didn't completely understand and you're not able to go hold on a minute it is more complicated i'm going off on a tangent now but no no i completely not yeah and and what i think is is that sort of for me is that sort of common there's something really beautiful about the commonality when you start piecing together threads and you realize there's a sort of a a feeling of okay i get i get that i don't quite get it but i've got this thing that's similar so it's sort of 
that's mm. connection and sort of community and the commonality of kind of shame and the, the core that, that bit of you that is being not okay othered, yeah. yeah that is basically being othered isn't it yeah exactly yeah, yeah I mean I think this has come up you know certainly for for me uh this week kind of with the you know the black lives matters movement and certain conversations within the sober community about you know race being outside of sobriety and it's like you know the things that you just described now in terms of feeling um as a young person feeling shamed or feeling othered or or again the the violence and the trauma of people um you know talking in a way that's hurtful and how much that impacts is you know exactly a part of this conversation you know and if 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 black people can't go into a recovery space and feel safe and feel or feel ignored you know and and again that kind of that whole thing of going through um mental health professionals and not finding someone that understands your experience and and you know can't kind of heal you in a way that is respectful and understanding of your experience as a black person you know I can see a lot of sort of similarities within that it's not the same of course but there there are a lot of sort of similarities and even for me as a as a woman I mean kind of I get traumatized when I have to work with men that are displaying kind of patriarchal ideas or shutting me down or talking to me in a patronizing way that traumas me as a as a woman you know that I don't feel heard or I I don't feel like I can express myself and that goes back to sort of you know childhood things so Mm. I do think this this idea of shame is so so important within sobriety movements and because it it impacts on all these people that have felt othered in some way or not felt like they belong or feel like they're or even you know being highly sensitive like you know we both identify as being kind of hsps and you You felt like you were um you know a sensitive child and that is sort of flagged up in school i'm talking i'm saying to you matthew um you know it's flagged up in schools it's like you're not this kind of extrovert hetero powerhouse child (laughs) you know it's like oh my god these things are brutal yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I know now, you know, that the, the reality is, is I'm not very well, you know, like, I, like, my mum always says, Oh, you're the, you know, you're the least crazy person I know, you know, but the fact of the matter is, I am so sensitive. And it, it's, yeah. it's a, it, you know, like, as a ther- therapist, I know really well, great, he's a great guy, David Smallwood, <clears throat> who features in Straightjacket, actually, he's always saying, you know, you look on that, you look on that as a curse, but actually, it's an amazing gift. And I, and I, I think there's some truth in that, you know, I think, my creative side comes from that and you know wouldn't have written a book or a play or whatever without that but the fact of the matter is it's stressful i mean i sound like like you know like people can imagine people calling me a snowflake but it can be really stressful walking down the street you know just thinking that this person that person am i safe is this going to happen um what do i need to do today i sometimes find it really hard to make decisions about very simple things because i am overwhelmed by the world you know like just the noises and the things yeah. it, it's it's hard it, it is hard and i'm not you know i do feel sometimes i think oh god people have really really difficult problems to deal with so that sounds does sound snowflakey mm-hmm. but it, that's just the way it is sometimes i really struggle to get out of bed even now yeah. relatively successful and, and you know worldly wise and all the rest of it it's it's um life can be hard for people like us and um I think if I if I, if I didn't have 
I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I don't always do the recovery the way I meant to do it, but if I didn't have that there when I needed it and when I need it, I, I think mm. that would be so much more unmanageable than it is now. Yeah, and and that thing you said, I really relate to the the HSP sort of thing. And I, what a particular interest of mine is neurodiversity, and again, it's linked. So if you are, you know, ADHD on the autistic spectrum, or what use, what you're resonating with me is a sort of sensory processing, and that can get you into a traumatic state because you're sensitive to processing, maybe auditory or physical and stuff like that. And I've had my own journey with that and my and in my family as well. And that is part of the piece. It's like, oh, okay, so I need to take extra care here as part of my recovery, um, mm. especially in a sensory way to regulate my nervous system. Mm. Who knew? And there's like loads of us. But, yeah. but we just kind of drank mm. to make it go a bit quiet. You know, that's that's a personal piece for me. But, you know, it's like... I don't know. I sometimes think I don't know how any of us get out in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I, t- I, t- I totally relate to that. And um, it's been interesting, actually, just in, with the whole lockdown thing, that in some ways my anxiety has gotten better because just having to go out and dealing with work, and because I'm a freelancer, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've worked for you know decades in, in offices and there's lots of good things about that. And then one of the good things about about it was the fact that there's there's the structure. So at least you know what you're doing. And being a freelancer, just the constant admin and the emails and doing invoicing and chasing things up and calls and this and that and the other can become really, really stressful. I, I feel like I do sound like a snowflake now. <laughs> oh, it's awful having to make phone calls. But it's <laughs> I, I, like I work with someone actually who's a very, who's actually really successful um, uh in uh, in the creative industries now and he will, had a real problem with phones a massive anxiety about phones he could not answer phones and he dressed it up as oh I'm a bit of a diva and I want other people to my, answer my phones but we had a conversation about it. He, he literally would have panic attacks about it because just that direct communication he, he wasn't very good at it so it's it's, it's yeah it's fascinating I think yeah I mean I I, I I can relate to that I absolutely like dread having to call people I really 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 struggle with it and I think the thing is is like you know we can we can put sort of shaming ter- terms on it and be like oh we're a snowflake oh we're sensitive and that was the sort of things that I grew up with that was just like oh stop being so serious stop being so sensitive stop being so you know over the top stop you know stop making a big deal out of things and it's like well let's flip it on its head it's like I'm not I am all those things but I am all these other things I have great strengths I am a creative etc you know but I need self-care like I need care I need a care package you know and and I'm not alone in that so I mean we focus very much on kind of self-care and, and looking self-regulation after taking um, breaks um and and that doesn't and it, it, it does seem like, you know, if you go in, through any of those paths of kind of an introverted person or a highly sensitive or neurodiverse, you know, there's just a lack of of understanding and, and therefore sort of care for those those groups of people. And and um, and luckily within kind of recovery movements. Yeah. Yeah. We can find that sort of support, that extra support that we need. So, I mean, you talked about what groups, what what helped you on your kind of recovery journey? Where did you get support or where do you get support now, I suppose? Um, uh, well, originally I went to uh, a, a therapist who was a gay man in recovery who basically said to me, um, 
he said, why are you here? And I told him the story that I eventually told you. And he said, and he said, um, well, of course you, you screwed up, you're gay. And that was a really confronting thing to say. And he went on to then say, well, it's not because you're gay, it's because you've grown up gay in the society that really invalidates people who aren't kind of heterosexual and cisgendered. And, um, and that was a really amazing breakthrough for me for someone to to allow me to 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 say that to me and to to say actually you can feel you, you are allowed to feel it bad about the fact that you've gone through a really hor- horrendous time growing up um uh so um well, well i go I, I go to 12-step meetings and i know there's a kind of uh uh um a thing about anonymity and i don't know whether i'm meant to say it or i'm not meant to say it. i don't know but yeah i also go to <laughs> i go to aa and i have a really conflicted thing about that because like the the you're, 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 it's meant to be anonymous because if you're um, I don't know like there's so many celebrities in especially in America but here too but who who are in twelve um, step groups and the thing is that the idea is you don't say because if you're I don't know someone very famous or some Oscar winning actor and you say you're in AA and then you start drinking again then people go oh see it doesn't work because we knew about it and we've seen him mess it up because sometimes people do relapse yeah. but then on the other hand. I really wish I'd known about that these groups before. I, I, I really wish I'd heard about them because it would have saved me years and really, you know, damaged my health. I've got you know long term problems because of drinking too much, and I would have, uh, I think, I would have been able to deal with it earlier if people were open about it. And I think they're they're life saving for some people. And I, and I do think as well, you know, there's groups like Crystal Meth Addicts Anonymous and Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And I think that uh, certainly in big cities like London has, a, has an incredibly serious problem with really dangerous drugs like crystal meth and G that that are common in uh, for, for some gay men. Not not everybody. That you know, it's a minority, but it's a really significant minority, and it's it's killing people. And I just feel like. I think we need a, a bit, a bit more of a, a, a for it to be more out, out in the open for people to talk about recovery more because mm, people, people are dying. I mean, I have completely lost count of the people, I've, the gay men I've known who, who died from drug overdoses. It's an, a, it's a huge, huge, huge crisis, and it's really not talked about very much. And everyone's really sensitive about it. You hear kind of like gay voices, kind of very nervous about talking about it because they think it's stigmatizing and going you know, to give place to a homophobic narrative. And you also, it, it, the mainstream culture and press doesn't really like talking about it very much because they feel like they're tr- they don't understand. I think a lot of them are quite hom- homophobic, they, but, they, but they don't want to be seen to be being homophobic, so they won't talk about it. Mm. And because they don't understand it, because it's counterintuitive as well, because you would think, why would gay people have... A, high levels of some of these problems but it is all about the way we grow up we're not fundamentally different it's just about the fact that we grow up it, I, I i don't most people most lgbt people i know can relate to this to to similar story to mine of just growing up feeling absolutely isolated and not able to be yourself and not everybody there's loads of really successful happy thriving people the majority of gay people don't do drugs but it is a significant problem that a lot of us could relate to. Yeah, and I, I know a, a moment that really resonated um, for Lee and Scott when I talked to them about the book was this kind of, you know, as a young person, your first relationship, you know, and 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 that kind of, you know, as as a straight woman, like I come home and well, actually, my parents hated my first boyfriend, but that was not good. But you know, but. It, 
in principle you go home and it's a it's a happy thing it's like here's my boyfriend you know and and and, and that is something that that doesn't certainly rite of passage somehow yeah and 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 that doesn't happen very many gay or lesbian people or trans people um and that 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 is the sort of the real trigger of shame that then goes out you know out into the world oh my god i mean you know again it's really important to acknowledge that you know huge huge numbers of gay people and lgbt people are in successful thriving happy relationships but also lots of us aren't and i struggle with relationships something that's very common i think i mean a lot of people you know who might be in their late 20s or the 30s and sometimes in their 40s you've never had a, a serious relationship and it's not surprising you know there's a part in my book where um that seems to really resonate with people where i could just compare my early experience of relationships with my brothers you know that my brother grew up being told that the feelings he had were completely natural and celebrated i grew up hearing that those feelings i knew i had even though other people didn't know would just work, would get me something were illegal, uh, either to some degree. You know, the age of consent was different. People could have been put in prison, you know, for four years before I was born. Um, you know, were against, you know, the religion, were antisocial, were not allowed to be talked about. When my when my brother had, had his friends and he was talking, would be a teenager talking about sex, as you do when you're a teenager, to his friends, they would have all joined in in that I couldn't do that I, I didn't have that because it wasn't allowed when he had his first girlfriend it was kind of um, supported by society for me it was terrible you know he was allowed to bring you know he had serious relationships and it was allowed the, the, my, my parents were re, you know completely cool, relaxed about it and when he had a serious relationship she was able to stay over at my brother's house I had to, my, my first relationship we used to sit in his car when I was 17 holding hands because he couldn't come back to my house I couldn't go to his house and every time the police went past a police car went past we'd be terrified that he'd be arrested because i was 17 he was 23 you know so you just grow up with just this absolute complete chalk and cheese yeah i mean it just yeah it it just feels feels suffocating and it's not surprising that even though i was someone who was going on gay pride marches and you know working at stonewall and fighting for you know in a very small way for, for um lgbt rights you can't help but absorb this negativity that is just surrounding you from every yeah. from every aspect. And then also when you come out, there's a, you're coming out into a community of people who've all been through that experience and are all traumatised. No one really ever talks about it because it's not really been examined really very much or talked about or studied or whatever. And so everyone's kind of medicating on alcohol, sometimes drugs, on sex, desperate for validation because they've grown up feeling really bad about themselves. And that makes it difficult to have relationships yeah. with people because people are really traumatised. So it's like this pinball machine of people like bouncing around and, and and no one in the middle of it saying, hang on a minute, yeah, we need to take some time out to just work on ourselves and you know feel good about ourselves. Mm. And it's what you, it's so important what you, I think what you said from, um, again, I'm drawing links with neurodiverse and ADHD kids who will get put in the sim bin kind of thing. Because we had an educationalist on a couple of weeks ago who specializes in this about trauma in kids with ADHD. And it's this, when you put people together, you co-regulate and you need healthy stuff going on rather than you know, sort of ghettoized people, oh, that's if that's really... a word, 
because you co- because you need to co-regulate with other people because we connect and, and that's the way we feel safe and do our development. So if no one in your community, if no one in your in that group is able, you know, to do that, no no one's doing it. You know, it's, it's a very um, a very boundaryless place. Um, yeah, guess, yeah, 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 yeah. Not not the gay community, but the gay gay culture. You know, like we, that yeah. was another thing that you know, like when I went out to the my first um, gay bar, um, we were the youngest. We used to go to this gay club, and me and my friends were the youngest kind of people there. It was very very adult, very very sexual, um, and lots of those things were great. You know, I enjoyed loads of that. I you know threw myself into that but we got into some very unhealthy dangerous places and it just it just yeah and, and there's a there's a lot of that going around I mean when I was contacted by so many people like a friend of mine who the first time he went to uh, a gay club um he, he ended up uh, being raped by somebody he was someone who spiked his drink I'm not saying that these are things that happen all, all the time but it, it's a big problem and and, and it just it feels like it just hasn't really been addressed or hasn't really been been talked about. And there's, there's a lot of trauma out there and a lot of pain. And I think that I suppose the point of my book was, it's kind of like a, a cool, a clarion call to people to mm. say that just talking about recovery and understanding them what maybe, you know, there might be significantly higher levels of, you know, problematic drinking or drugging that we need to talk about that and we need to do something about it. And we just need yeah. to come together and support each other and just say that, you know, we are worthwhile as everybody is and we deserve uh, to take care of ourselves and to take care of each other and to, and to, and to find a real sense of community to really look after each other, to really um, support one another. And actually I have found that mostly in, in recovery in specific LGBT groups, but also in wider groups, it's been really helpful for me. I think growing up, I felt so, uh, traumatized by mainstream society and so unsafe that I just, just lived in a bit of a ghetto and I mm. it's been a really amazing thing for me to to not do that and to try to you know to to hang out with a diverse group of people meaning straight people straight people get to be the diverse group for one. <laughs> so what um what would you say the biggest areas of you know personal development have been for you in recovery um i suppose well i i suppose in recovery in recovery i mean i haven't done it perfectly but you're meant to go back and um and just try and unpick some of the things that you the thing the mistakes you may have made um to try and remove the shame that may be inherent with that um i think just understanding that you that we're not perfect no one's perfect and you're you're allowed to make mistakes because i've been a total nightmare to people too you know in relationships or friendships you know i used to very code have very codependent friendships still can sometimes but with people my, with my best friend would end up quite often rowing on the phone and it was always like no it's his fault it's his fault it's his fault and to be able to say actually yes sometimes it's my fault is such a life-changing thing to be able to just go you know what I'm not perfect and I do make mistakes and you know it's partly because you know grown up the way I have and to try and become more aware of that self-aware of it and, and not do it as much that's been an incredibly healing and positive thing yeah I totally relate to that um and I know that you you have a group for for gay men do you want to 
Is it online at the moment? Yes. Uh, um, with the therapist, Simon Marks, who's a really good friend of mine, um, we run a group called A Change of Scene, which um, I think yeah, the main the main thing is on Facebook uh, under A Change of Scene. Um, but it's also on, on Twitter, but it's quite hard to find. I think it's ACOS, uh, A-C-O-S, on Twitter. Um, but it's basically, yeah, it's a once-a-month um, discussion group for gay and bi men where uh, – we it's free free to attend it's in london where people just come to the group we have a, a topic uh which someone talks about for 10 minutes and then other people are invited to to just share back and it's just a way of getting basically allowing gay and bisexual men just to explore some issues it might be alcohol it might be relationships or grinder or this or that or different things of of, of interest and, and which are specific to our lives but it's just a, a really important word because as I was saying earlier about bars and clubs, because we've been kind of forced almost underground, so many of us just spend our only experience of other gay men is in nightclubs with alcohol and drugs or now on apps, you know, dating apps in a, in a digital way. And it's not a real 3D experience. And so just to see each other face to face is an amazing thing. And every, every time there's always a new person who go, Oh my goodness, I've been, you know, out for 20 years and I've never really sat and chatted to a group of gay men like this before. So yeah, I'm, I'm, it's been going for about five or six years now. So like we, we didn't know whether it would be popular, but um, yeah, it's still, it's still packed every, every time. So yeah, very proud of that. Yeah. Well, we'll put the, the link to that underneath. And um, so your book, Pride, um, which I actually saw in my local bookshop in France because it's been translated into oh, French yeah, picture right. and send it to, to Scott. Um, it's a beautiful book. Um, and I know it's, is it just about to be published in the, in the States as well? Is yes, that right? yeah, just, come, just about to come out in America, yeah. Yes. So what was the, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Well, I, I think um, part of what, like, in the, towards the end of Straightjacket, there's a whole, I just give my opinion about a whole load of things that that, that should happen to, to make life a bit more full and, and rounded for LGBT people. And part of that is, like, you know, seeing yourself in films and on TV and stuff, but having a sense of sense of our community and, and history. You know, there's a really rich history, especially of protest, and you know the people who fought for decades and decades and decades to to make things better and to change laws and have social change. And I don't think we know much about it because history. I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't even told. About, it's funny the, the whole thing about slavery that's being talked about at the moment. I was never taught taught about slavery at school. I wasn't even taught about World War Two. I was just taught about um, like Mesopotamia. <laughs> <laughs> and and and, uh, and Henry VIII. I mean, really. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it, it's shocking. So, so gay history, LGBT history, has not really been taught or understood. And I, when I and so I wanted to to do a book. It's a, it's a kind of coffee table picture book. But I thought I I knew. Uh, you know, I thought, oh, this will be easy to write. I know, you know, most of it. There was just so much stuff that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. You know, the just the people that have fought and in in so many different ways and across the world. You know, in all the different countries, just to just to change things. So. Um, I hope that it's a it's a really inspiring read for people and about the just about the importance of protest about standing up for yourself because you know changes in the world have, are never given to us people always unfortunately need to fight for them and I think you know now more than ever that's something we need to be doing because the world is such a terrible state yeah it's such a beautiful book um so do you have any plans or projects coming up that you want to to highlight or yeah number one plan is getting through the day Okay. Yes. If I can manage that, I have to say that. But that, that it's funny because when this happened, I thought, "Oh my God, am I going to drink during this mm. thing?" And I don't have any alcohol now, and and it's not, you know, it's not 
six years in, I, I don't. It's never really a thing where I think, oh my god, I want to drink. And you know, sometimes friends will say, oh, is it okay? Do you mind if I have a glass of wine if we go for dinner? I'm like, yeah, of course. It's not. It's not an issue at all, and I don't have that craving. But someone did post a couple a few weeks ago on Facebook. Someone, a friend of mine, posted on Facebook a picture of a pint of lager, like the first pint in months, and I did have a. I was so stressed. I, my head was going, I really would like that. So, um, yeah, but it's that, that's not going to happen, touch wood, I hope. It's certainly not going to happen today, so hopefully that won't happen. Um, yeah, I've, just, I've got some ideas for some other books, and um, there was a play that I had started working on, but it's, uh, everyone's telling me that there's going to be no theatre after this. So I, I hope that's not true. I'm, I'm sure that won't be true. But I do think that theatres are in a really financially difficult place at the moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, the world's completely in a terrible state, isn't it? But, yeah, I hope to write, hope to write some, some books. I mean, the, the other thing that I really um, am very passionate about is uh, the environment and climate change because I don't think people understand how bad it, bad it is. You know, we, mm. this is, a, this is a, a, a real taster of how bad things are going to get very soon within our lifetimes if we don't turn things around. And I, and I hate to even talk about it because I know that people think, oh, you know, hippies and it's kind of like, oh, these boring kind of vegans. But it's like, I, I think that's yeah. a problem culturally that the mainstream has had that idea in its head and people don't read books about it. And if you listen to the scientists, there's a great guy called James Hansen on YouTube, it is TED Talk. I really recommend people listen to it. We are a deep, 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 deep doo-doo, far worse than people understand, and I'm really, really frightened. So that that actually really affects my anxiety as well. Mm. I don't think there's any template for, for say, for something like this that's happened with this, this virus. In recovery, uh, we deal with the day-to-day lives, but there's nothing to, to deal with something as big as this, and what's coming down the road is far bigger. So I, I do feel this is, just going back to that book, Pride, I, I feel like... The, the the need to protest is immense at the moment because look at the just governments and Trump and the, if you leave it to them we're we're doomed so yeah. we need it's we need to like you yeah. are I said it certainly it certainly feels like that at the moment and I don't know I mean I I am sort of my my friend just wrote a book about hope before all this kicked off and she's she's a great writer and the sort of the need for hope and the sort of she likened it to you know that the pandora's box where she goes in and there's all of the horrors but at the bottom is this one thing and it's hope and that that need to hold on to it um and 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 the kind of recovery tools like you know the one day at the one day at a time and knowing what we what we can control, what we can't, yeah. and I, I, I think that's really helpful for me. Um, but also that um, I, I feel like we're going through a shift. I, I, I truly do. I feel like we are. We can't ignore it. Like now, we just can't. It mm-hmm. has. To, it, it needs now. But it, I think it's the long. It's the long game. It's like everyone can shout. Because my thing is like, okay, there's been a lot of noise in the last couple of weeks, couple, a week or so. But what's the long game? Do you know what I mean? I'm working out that sustained resilience, and that's that wanes, doesn't it? It waxes and wanes. Sometimes you've got mm-hmm. the. Sometimes you're on the front line. Sometimes you're resting, so then you can pick up arms again, and then you can, and um. So I think there's that. There's the one more thing that I was going to pick up though because you were talking about about 
gay people and oh and then we were talking about you know the othered thing about finding joy through art or or finding solace as a way to to numb pain or to as spaces almost to inhabit and we were talking recently in a in a course that we're we're running about the work of Micheli whatever his name is and he was I don't know if you know him I'll post I'll link it or something but basically he studied world war ii survivors Do do you know of him and he was it's not the one about the trauma that gets passes down to generations, is it? Yeah, but he's, he he studied what makes certain people thrive mm-hmm. and what makes certain people go under. And he identified this state of flow or a resilience that comes from creativity with creatives. And a lot of their... It, so to put a positive lens on it, that, 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 that going towards the theatre, going to needing to tell our stories in different formats and the wonderland that you need you can escape to is ma- is is huge resilience for then getting back in the fight <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah I think that's really interesting there's in the musical Rent the 1999 musical is a massive hit and there's a line in that where which I always remember where they said where they said the opposite of war isn't peace it's creation and mm-hmm. I, I think that in the, the culture we live in we're all kind of it, we've, we've gone really badly wrong you know like the idea that people get up in the morning and think I'm going to get um, a real sense of achievement out of, I don't know, selling a house or not I'm knocking estate agents. But you, you know what I mean? Like the kind of day, like the kind of the day-to-day admin stuff that I have to do, like I have to do it and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not, that's not, that doesn't really bring me joy and like make my kind of soul, you know, sore or anything. It's about, um, you know, being being creative, and I think everybody has it in them, and I think kids have it knocked out of them by this school system with this obsessive need. You know, your exams, you must be the best, you must do this, you must do that. I had an ex-boyfriend who was a mechanic, a car mechanic, when I was younger, and I was really surprised that he had this kind of hobby that which he kind of, you know, been told not to do, which was making cakes, and he eventually started going back to it, and he made, made the most amazing cakes, and he still does them now, and he makes money out of selling them to people. I think everybody has that in them, but we get it we get it kicked out of us, and I think it's a real... Yeah, well, they often say, don't they, that, you know, people that do develop problematic relationships with addictions and, you know, or in whatever sense that is, is the frustrated creative, you know, and it's that thing of like, we've got that something and, and yeah, and where do you put that, you know, and it's also this idea of play, you know, like since lockdown, I've been, I'm going to mention puzzles again, I've, I've started, you know, doing jigsaw puzzles and I've started doing, you know, painting and like, and just creative play and, and like, and that element of fun and being able to express yourself um, and not take yourself so seriously mm-hmm. or, or journal or write and, and, and it not be perfect, like just have fun with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's what saves us in recovery. You know, that's what saves me. Certainly it's like, oh, what can I do now that I've never tried before? <laughs> like, OK, I'll try some, you know, intuitive painting. I've never done that before, but like that will keep me kind of occupied and my brain sort of ticking over and give me a way of sort of letting out all these feelings and, and stuff so I don't drink because that was my other option it's like either shut it up or find a way to express it essentially I mean that's for me it's no that's how, yeah no I really relate to that I mean I, I think part of the problem with one of the you know like things like crime and people dropping out of society it just feels like this it feels so competitive and so hard to achieve what society considers to be 
success. You know, when I was a young person, you know, this constant narrative, oh, you need to do really well to get a good job. I thought, oh, God, I'm, I'm never going to be good enough to, to get a job. I thought it would be really hard to get a, a, a good job when, that this, when actually – isn't that hard? I mean, I don't mean that it's not hard because because I, I come from a working class background and I know that people don't get opportunities. But I think part of the biggest, one of the biggest problems is that that phrase of poverty of of, amb- of ambition because I think you're told you're not going to be good enough, you're not able to do it, and it's only this type of person that'll be successful. And I think a lot of people are like scared of even trying because you're told that you're not going to be good enough to do it. And I think I wish society could be more structured around just saying, actually, you know, we can help you. We can all work together rather than this being dog eat dog. Mm. I think it's, I think it's a massive, I think it's a massive problem. I love Mm. what you said though, about, I mean, it's like if we told our kids, actually, you know what, it's not that hard. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we need people, don't we? Yeah. Actually, one of the great things, one of the most positive things that's come out of this disaster that we're in at the moment is that I think that people suddenly, I, I've ranted about this for a long time, despite the fact that I work for a magazine that did check, put lots of celebrities on the cover, that I think celebrity culture has gone so berserk that, the, you know, that kids are being told that the only thing worthwhile is being on Instagram or being beautiful and posing and bouncing on Instagram or being a pop star or whatever, when those people have a really, really hard time of it. And I think the society, this, this disaster has shown us that people that are really it sounds like a cliche but it's really true are people you know that you know refuse collectors you know nurses and doctors and the nhs and cleaners and and i was when this happened i really went into this blind panic am i going to be able to get food you know am i going to be able to eat i never i wanted to put you know wrap my arms around the delivery man's feet around his ankles and kiss his feet <laughs> me my pasta bakes do you know what i mean so <laughs> we need, you know, we need to just yeah. to really, like you said, to really have a real shift in our priorities and our values because it's mm. it's just not working and it hasn't. Cool really- bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm ranting. I get overexcited. No, no, no. We <laughs> You're in the place of the ranters. <laughs> well, we should we start ranters anonymous. I don't know. I uh, jumped that one. Yeah. Okay, we should probably uh, yeah. yeah finish up. So we always finish with like a tip of the day, the day, and a reason to love sober. So, what would be your tip of the day for? Yeah, just I don't know for recovery or. Um, I always say someone asked me the other day, but what I would say to myself as a younger, as a as a teenager, and I would just say that it's not a competition. You're not really in a comp- competition with other people, and just chill out, take a deep breath, and. You know, there's so much stuff that goes on where people don't feel good enough and so they take it out and they, or they're trying to show off or they're trying to do this or trying to get one up on other people. And it's such a, you know, I can be like that sometimes, but it, I have to try and bring myself down and go, I'm not in competition with anything yeah. or anyone. It doesn't matter. Just let it, just get through the day. Um, what was love the second that. bit? Your, your reason to love sober. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just to not have a hangover is just amazing to you know anxiety is still a problem for me but it was so much worse when I drank and I always used to think right I'll have a drink this evening to quell the anxiety and then tomorrow it would end up being far 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 worse so to not have to to do that is um fantastic yeah thank you so much yeah thank you and can I just say in case I'm always paranoid I don't like because obviously I'm not saying I, I, I'm getting myself to muddle now, but I'm, just, I'm always conscious. Of, I'm not saying you know all gay people are broken or all gay people are addicts or drug addicts. Not at all. And I, I you know, like I'm 
proud to be, you know, a member of the LGBT community. And uh, the resilience of people is so amazing. It's not at all about shaming people at all. It's actually about what society has done to us. And that, yes, there are some problems, but we can address them and, and we and we deserve it. And um, yes, I'm not in any way. I always want to make it clear that I'm not saying, okay, people will take drugs. It's not that. I'm not saying that. No. It's not true at all. Yeah, no, no, that, yeah, certainly that doesn't come across. I mean, and it's, it's within all of this and, you know, whatever way that you've been othered, it's not you that's the problem. It's the, it's the systems around you that have, have left you unsupported. Mm. Yeah. And unseen. And unseen. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant. And we'll put all the details underneath, um, yeah and if you're immediately um worried about your drinking then get reach out and get in touch with kate and i or um yeah um info at love sober um soberistas have a ask the doctor service um you're not alone and um we'll see you next week for for more chat so thanks a lot